As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. War has played a key role in the history of the United States, from the nation's founding right down to the present. War made the U.S. independent, kept it together, increased its size, and established it as a global superpower. Understanding America's wars is essential for understanding American history. Welcome to Key Battles of American History, a podcast in which we discuss American history through the lens of the most important battles of America's wars. Here is your host, James Early. Welcome back to Key Battles of the Pacific Theater World War II. This is your host, James, as always. In our last episode, last two episodes, we took some time to talk about what it was like to be a common soldier on the Japanese side as well as on the American side. We also did the same thing for pilots. We did the same thing for Marines to a lesser extent. And then we spent a whole episode, which was our last one, talking about the life of a common sailor. What was it like to be on these submarines and these battleships and these carriers? And we found that it was a, a life characterized by long periods of inactivity, not inactivity, but, but lack of combat, long periods of tedium and boredom punctuated by brief periods of terror, which is pretty similar to what ground soldiers and pilots also experienced. So having done that, and, and again, we hope that you'll, as we go through these battles, that you'll keep in mind the common people that are on the ships, the ones firing the guns, the ones that are hosing down the decks, the ones that are cleaning things, the ones that are doing damage control, even the cooks that are preparing the food. Remember that these were all human beings that had, it sounds like a cliche, but they had dreams, they had life ambitions and goals, a lot of them had Well, they all had loved ones back home, and here they are in this not really great fun situation, although I think some did enjoy it, but for the most part, they did it because they felt like they needed to do it to serve their country. And so think about that other than just, okay, uh, three ships were sank, and that was it. It's not a bunch of automatons or robots or artificial intelligence, as Scott mentioned in the last episode. Now we're going to move on to some relatively smaller actions i'm going to use the term relatively because some of these actually there were large casualties but these are battles that are important but they are just not quite as major and big enough for us to count as key battles so far we've discussed four key battles we've talked about the attack on pearl harbor 
we've talked about the Battle of the Coral Sea. We've talked about the Battle of Midway and then the epic Guadalcanal campaign, which lasted several months. You probably remember we spent four episodes on that. Some people probably thought, gosh, when are they ever going to finish this? That's kind of what the guys on the ground thought, too. When are we going to finish this? But, and now we're going to turn to uh, some of these engagements we're going to talk about in the next two episodes actually predate Guadalcanal slightly. But we're going to take you today in this episode from July of 1942 to August of 1943. We'll see a few last-ditch efforts by the Japanese to uh, expand their empire. And, and, and then, of course, allies are trying to roll that back. They're trying to push back on the Japanese and, and unexpand the Japanese empire, I guess, or contract the Japanese empire. Scott is with me, as always. Scott, how's it going? Doing all right. Yeah, we're, uh, I guess uh, you could call it some, uh, this is a, a bit of a mop-up episode where we're looking at places that we explored several epi- episodes ago, such as uh, near uh, Papua or modern-day New Guinea at the Battle of the Coral Sea. But then we went elsewhere to focus on different battles, and you just have to jump around when you're talking about the Pacific Ocean, which is essentially half of planet Earth. It's a... Uh, not easy to describe yeah. the Pacific theater in a linear way because it doesn't happen in a linear way. It's like talking about the population movements across Eurasia, that it's just a massive area. Uh, and when we left off the Battle of the Coral Sea, it was looking at the attempts of Japan to set up a strong enough presence that it would choke off supply lines from the United States to Australia. Uh, and it didn't end, of course, in Japanese victory. And there were lessons learned learned from there that is going to be applied uh, in uh, these different campaigns that we'll see. And one is that uh, in order to effectively cover the eastern approaches to Port Moresby, which is uh, in that area in uh, Papua, uh, the Air Force needed a base near the southern tip of New Guinea. An airfield would not only provide protection for Port Moresby, but give the Air Force a base for launching attacks against enemy positions to the north and northwest. So there's one airfield, uh, a suitable site for one was located at Milne, uh, is pronounced Milne Bay. Um, well, we'll look at it uh, later. And so there are plans for a landing strip to be set up here. Uh, yeah, so this is uh, following up on the Battle of the Coral Sea that we looked at earlier. And with that, take it away, James. All right, so our first little uh, campaign, I say little, it lasts, it's, it's going to last for almost four months. It's going to go from July 21st to November 6th, 1942. So it actually starts a couple weeks before the invasion of Guadalcanal, just to put that in chronological perspective, but it goes to November, which is, and, and after that, Guadalcanal is still going on for a while. And this is, uh, it's on Papua or New Guinea, as we call it today. And it's called the Kokoda Track Campaign. Sean McIver insisted that I put this in, Scott. <laughs> he said, you, you got to include Kokoda. I said, okay, I'll include it. And I'm glad he said that because I might not have thought to include it, but it's significant. And what, what's this all about? Well, as, as Scott mentioned before, the Battle of the Coral Sea occurred because the Japanese were trying to launch an invasion of Port Moresby, an ex- extremely important Australian port, Australian slash British, 
on the south side of New Guinea. And that was halted as a result of the Battle of the Coral Sea. The Americans and the other allies stopped them from achieving that success. So, And they had tried to go by sea. They had tried to bring soldiers on transports around the eastern tip of New Guinea. Now the Japanese are going to launch another attempt to get Port Moresby. That would allow them to threaten Australia and to protect the other territories that they had captured. But they're going to go about it differently. This time they're going to go straight over to land. So on July 21st, which is my mom's birthday, uh, God rest her soul, on July, let's see, she would have been 21 at this time. Wow, how about that? <clears throat> Sorry, I just had to throw in a little family information. On July 21st, a Japanese force landed at Bunagora, which is on the northern part of the island of New Guinea, and they pushed back a com combined native and Australian force. They marched along the Kokoda Track, or trail, which was a primitive pathway carved out of the jungle and covered a mountain range that bisects New Guinea laterally. It is a dirt mud trail that rises along huge terraced steps. And it is still today, as it was then, some of the most inhospitable territory in the world. Very difficult. And Kokoda just happens to be the midpoint. What was it like, Scott? Uh, you, got, you got some kind of contemporary description? Right. This is from the author A.B. Fewer, and he's written a number of books on uh, the Pacific Theater. It just seems the Japanese infantry were gluttons for punishment. I mean, I suppose every branch of the military was. But here's what it was like. The track, it climbed 6,000 feet to the highest oh. elevation, which is Templeton's Crossing. Then it drops into valleys slick with deposits of leaf mold. The trail runs six miles over rocky ground and through thick vegetation that chokes the narrow path between the sheer cliffs. The terrain varies only slightly as the track moves south. Although the gorges are deep with thicker undergrowth, there are not as many to cross. At higher elevations, the land is covered with moss and stunted trees, while the valleys are interlaced with kunai grass and marshland. The swamps, reeking of pungent odors, teem with leeches and malarial mosquitoes. Not until about 30 miles north of Port Moresby does the track finally begin to moderate. So this is uh, what the Japanese are going to march over to get to Port Moresby. All their equipment and everything else. That's dedication, <laughs> at least on the part of the commanders. I don't know how much, I don't think the, the common grunts had any say about it, but it does not sound like someone somewhere I'm going to put on my vacation Cross list. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, so the Japanese advance was very rapid. They, they had opposition, of course, but they, they overcame that opposition. And after only eight days on the 29th of July, they captured the airfield at Kokoda, which, as I mentioned, is about halfway across. And they continued to advance, repeatedly defeating the Allies. So it just seemed like the Japanese were a juggernaut at this point. They, how, they were unstoppable, seemingly, and well on their way to taking Port Moresby on the south side. And they nearly made it to Port Moresby, but they had to withdraw on uh, September 26th due to illnesses and lack of supplies. They were nearly starving. And they may even have resorted to cannibalism. There's some controversy about that. They had outrun their supply line, and they had been ordered to withdraw in consequence of reverses suffered at Guadalcanal. Here we see how one operation several hundred miles away uh, affects another one. The Allied force, which actually included an American division, it wasn't all British and native, but mainly, 
They pursued the withdrawing Japanese. They recaptured Kokoda, and they defeated the Japanese in a major battle between November 4th and 11th. By November 16th, the Japanese had retreated all the way back to a fortified position at Bunagora, right back to where they started, where they first landed, and there they would remain for the rest of the war. So it's almost like if, if you visualize a football game and one team pushes like from they start at the goal line and, or, and they go all the way to the five-yard line and then they run out of steam and they start passing out and they get injured and then the other team pushes them all the way back to the original the goal line where they started. Uh, it sounds like, I don't know if it's a seesaw battle. It's not going back and forth. It just goes and then right back. But it was at a great cost. The Allies lost 625 killed, 1,055 wounded, and about 4,000 to illness. Japanese losses were much higher, as they often are in these battles. They lost two, over 2,000 killed and about 4,500 wounded and sick. The campaign is considered an Allied victory because the Japanese were stopped from capturing Port Moresby. So that's good for the Allies, but at a great cost. Any thoughts on that, Scott? Uh, yeah, sounds good. Let's look at the Gilbert Islands. I would not want to have been in that battle. Honestly, I don't know that I ever, would ever, nobody would ever want to be in a battle, but uh, that one seems especially bad. Although there are going to be some, I think, later that would be considered worse. So there we go, foreshadowing. All right, moving to the Gilbert Islands, we're going to look at the second operation. is a very small operation. It lasted only two days. It's called the Macon Raid. But I throw this one in because this was the first combat operation of the second Raider Battalion of the U.S. Marine Corps. Now, we've already actually talked about them because uh, we're not going in strict chronological order. Later, the Marine 2nd Raider Battalion is going to go to Guadalcanal and engage in the search-and-destroy mission behind enemy lines, which we call the Long Patrol. Hopefully you remember that. But here, this is before that happened, here they are getting their feet wet. And as, as everybody hopefully remembers, the 2nd Marine Raider Battalion is the unit that my dad was in. He was the 2nd Lieutenant. But he was not in this. His company did not participate. This was so small that not even not even the whole battalion came. The Macon Atoll was the westernmost Japanese-held position in the Pacific. So it's just kind of like this sore thumb sticking out, like almost pointing at the U.S., saying, come and get us. And so the U.S. is going to do that. The Macon Atoll is part of the Gilbert Islands chain. It's about 2,400 miles southwest of Hawaii. Just a hop, skip, and a jump, right, Scott, by, <laughs> by Pacific standards? Yeah, it's practically next-door neighbors. Um, the atoll could – yeah, next-door neighbors. Where's your neighbor? Oh, he's 2,400 miles away. The atoll contained a Japanese seaplane base protected by a garrison of about only 70. And to destroy Imperial Japanese installations, take prisoners, gain intelligence on the Gilbert Islands, and to divert Japanese attention from the Allied landing at Guadalcanal and Tulagi, the second – Marine Raider Battalion was ordered to conduct a raid there. Of course, a raid a raid is just you go in, you attack, kill some people, you blow up some stuff, you get intelligence, and then you get the heck out. It's not intended to be a conquest like, like Guadalcanal is going to be. Early on August 17th, two companies, which is about 211 men of Raiders, 
commanded by Lieutenant Colonel Evans Carlson, were transported to Macon on two submarines. We talked about submarines in a previous episode. So take the crew and then put a bunch of Marines in there as well. <laughs> put 100 Marines that you, you go from crowded to jam-packed. I think they were, I read that they were sleeping several high hammocks or, and some of them just had to sleep wherever they could find a couple of inches. <laughs> so they got, they, they, get, they went over on submarines. And then when they got closer to the island, they used rubber rafts to land on the island. But the seas were rough and the landing did not go as planned. When they got to the beaches, the raiders met stiff Japanese resistance, but, and the Japanese, uh, conducted two bonsai charges and most of these were wiped out as often occurs with bonsai charges. They do, they have an initial shock value. They, they do some damage at first, but then they, they're just cut to pieces by heavy arms fire. That evening, the raiders tried to return to the submarines, but many were forced back to the island by the waves. It was a horrible experience. They were on their rafts. They were trying to paddle back out to the uh, subs, and the, the waves were just so high, they just swept them right back onto the beach. So they spent their night on the beach. Most had lost their weapons, their equipment. They're just sitting there. They felt like sitting ducks, and they were wondering, is this going to be the end of us? Are the Japanese going to come? you know, just jump out of the trees and, and come after us, but they didn't. The next evening, the submarines were able to evacuate the raiders. Japanese lost 46 men killed, as well as two flying boats destroyed. The Marines had 28 killed, 17 wounded, and two missing. Tragically, nine were accidentally left behind, and they were later captured by Japanese soldiers and beheaded. And uh, something interesting with this is... Um... You'll, you'll hear this a lot as we talk about Americans in POW camps. There's many beheadings. This particular incident is referenced after the war. And these nine prisoners, like James said, they're blindfolded. They're swordsmen who behead them. This uh, particular execution uh, became an issue for war crimes investigators. So stands out um, specifically among all the beheadings that happened of American POWs. There was a U.S. Navy tribunal held on Guam on May 15, 1946. And the commander, the Japanese commander, who was in charge at this time, was sentenced to death uh, for these beheadings for war crimes. Uh, a Navy commander who was in command at the execution site received a sentence of 10 years imprisonment. And a lieutenant commander who had transported the prisoners to the execution site got five years of imprisonment. So this is this particular incident is specified probably because it was well known simply because the nine men who were left behind the uh, they were aware of it compared to many Americans in POW camps that it wasn't possible to identify their fate. So anyway, this is just this particular episode wasn't forgotten. Yeah, and I read a really good book on this, a brief book, just simply called The Macon Raid. Oh, gosh, probably 10 years ago, maybe more. Uh, and I'm, I, I can't help but wonder, I'm sure my dad knew quite a few of the men that participated in this raid, even though he didn't go personally. But I can't help but wonder if uh, if he knew any of the men that were beheaded. I'm sure he probably knew at least one or two. He never talked about this. I, I, I had to learn about this from a book. So uh, anyway, just one of those things about my father in particular and World War II veterans in general, they just didn't always want to talk about their experiences. And you can understand why, certainly. It'll 
it's already pretty clear, but it's going to become even more clear as, as these battles are going to get increasingly bloody. Anyway, regarding the Macon raid, it did not accomplish all of its objectives. And in fact, it, ironically, it may have led to more U.S. deaths later because the Japanese obviously were not stupid and they realized, oh, if they do this at this small little outpost, what are they going to do? How many more guys are they going to bring to some of our other installations, our other bases further to the uh, west? So as a result of the Macon raid, the Japanese actually strengthened several of their other Pacific Island garrisons. Tarawa comes to mind as one example. And so that may have made it tougher for the Marines later to take places like Tarawa. But on the other hand, it did boost American morale. Keep in mind that this is what this is in July, so it's about seven months after Pearl Harbor. Uh, it's three months after the Doolittle raid, so it seems like an American victory, even though it's a very small operation. But uh, it has a very good psychological impact on the American public, and it also gave the raiders valuable experience. Uh, they will use the lessons they learned at Macon when they go to Guadalcanal later on in the year. So that's the end of the Macon raid. Shall we move on to the next one, Scott, or do you want to say Let's anything else? James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match, with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Let's do it. All right. We move on now into March of 1943 at what's called the Battle of the Bismarck Sea. And some would argue that this is not really a battle, but we'll let you be the judge of that listener. After Pearl Harbor, Japan's leaders knew, of course, that the U.S. was going to go on the offensive. They hoped to wear out the Americans. 
by making them assault a large number of strong points within their network of island bases across the South Pacific. Sorry, my voice is starting <laughs> to give out. A, got allergies here, but I'm going to, I think I can make it. I can make it. I can make it. They realized that the U.S. would win a few tactical victories, but they hoped that the Americans would grow weary of their losses and seek a negotiated peace. That was the Japanese hope. And I think it's just worth it to pause right here. And it, it's easy to see, okay, the Japanese were foolish. Their strategy made no sense. And I've read a number of things online where people argue back and forth. Was there any possible scenario that the Axis powers could have won World War II? That Germany could have won World War II in the European theater and achieved all of their objectives, that Japan could have won? And some have argued back that if you look simply at the raw numbers that short of an alien invasion, there's simply no way that the Axis powers could have won World War II. And I'm not a military historian. There are many who know the numbers. They know the um, the strategists behind the scenes better than I do. But I mean, just speaking in very general terms, as a student of history, I've tried to learn to be very humble because listeners, I don't know as much about military strategy as the Japanese high command did in World War II. And unless you're working in military intelligence, you probably didn't either. So these are competent men who had been involved in war for years and decades, and they they weren't fools. They had charted things out, and they were probably looking at war by analogy with other battles and understanding that the path to Japanese victory had to do with fighting a war of attrition. And how many battles have James and I looked at where victory was achieved by a war of attrition, such as the Revolutionary War, where you have a vastly superior fighting force, the British in this case, fighting against an inferior force. However, it's closer to their home front. They're able to wear out the resolve of the superior force. The superior force, the people back home, really don't see the point of continuing to fight. The Over time, there are fewer resources committed to it. The troops on the ground don't see the point of continuing to fight. And the morale simply dissolves, and the numerically inferior but force that has a stronger morale wins, and this is what happens with the Revolutionary War. You could look at other wars of attrition, the French invasion of Russia by Napoleon, the Spanish Civil War. So you could list Civil War, you know, the American Civil War, that was the South's hope that the, the North would just, they could just, the South could... Wear out the North, you know, just kill so many guys that the North just throws up their hands and says, oh, never mind. And it seemed like that was going to happen a few times. One could argue that the problem with the Vietnam War is that many uh, the U.S. was using by analogy the Pacific theater and thought, well, we're simply going to wear them out. But uh, there was a stronger resolve at home to continue fighting. And that's not a perfect analogy. I'm not I mean, there's a lot of counter arguments you can make there. And I won't get into all that. Uh, Saddam Hussein studied the Vietnam War and simply assumed that he would get America drawn into a quagmire and win, but he reasoned incorrectly due to uh, a number of factors. So, the, I mean, there are so many different X factors and the infinite alternate scenarios that could have happened. I could never conclusively say that the Japanese were foolhardy in their strategy. Uh, we've seen this so many times in these battles. There are turning points. There are little things that could have happened. Um, what if the U.S. hadn't repaired the Yorktown in time for the Battle of Midway and hadn't had their other carrier? What if Yamamoto had had his two additional carriers that were bogged down after the Battle of the Coral Sea available at Midway? I mean, it's, 
so many little things like this that it's hard to conclusively say that their strategy was foolhardy. So for people who love to war game and strategize in World War II, I get it. It's a lot of fun. I just want to just stop and say that let's not just assume that it was the Japanese strategy was foolish from the beginning. And worst confusing listener, that's my that's my big fancy idea that I'm bringing to the plate right here. Yeah, I mean, it could have worked if a few things had gone differently. And I, I should say this, too. I, I play, or at least I used to play. I, I don't do much anymore, but I used to play a game called Axis and Allies. And I can tell you that when I played Allies, the Axis seemed to win a lot. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so moving on. Of course, that's just a game. But after Guadalcanal, the Japanese high command decided to reinforce many of their forward bases to bring about this goal of wearing down the Americans that we were talking about. One of these bases that they decided to reinforce was the port city of Lae, L-A-E, on the northern coast of New Guinea. So here's New Guinea again. Uh, very important to the war. In January of 1943, Admiral Yamamoto, who was the Japanese, essentially, SINGPAC, Commander-in-Chief Pacific, he sent 4,000 soldiers from Rabaul, the major Japanese air and naval base, to Lae. The next month, he approved the sending of 6,000 more soldiers. And these 6,000 soldiers would be carried on eight transports, escorted by eight destroyers and a large number of Zero fighters. Unbeknownst to the Japanese, however, the American codebreakers at Station Hypo, who we've already met uh, in the battles of Coral Sea and Midway, especially Midway. And by the way, Station Hypo is going to be rechristened before long the Joint Intelligence Center Pacific Ocean Area. J-I-C-P-O-A. I bet they called it JICPOA or something like that. You have to have a long abbreviation for everything. <laughs> they intercepted and they decoded the Japanese orders. They contacted the American air unit stationed on the eastern tip of New Guinea. The American air commander, uh, Major General George Kenney, ordered American and Australian bombers to attack the Japanese convoy. And on March 2nd, an American bomber sank one of the Japanese destroyers, killing over 300 soldiers and destroying a large amount of munitions. The next day, Kenny sent over 100 bombers to finish off the convoy. When the Japanese were near their destination, the bombers attacked. By nightfall on the 4th, all eight of the transports and four of eight destroyers had been sunk. 3,600 Japanese soldiers were killed. I just can't help feel bad for them they 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 were powerless they were sitting ducks the americans lost only six airplanes and only 13 men after only 18 months the americans had achieved total air superiority just about everywhere they fought that doesn't mean the japanese are gonna <laughs> lay down and surrender but far from it they're not even close but but we start to see the overwhelming superiority of american air power and how that really makes a difference this and again this calling this a battle is a little bit of a stretch it's really just a a, a major bombing raid on a bunch of helpless transports i should I, they're not totally helpless they have destroyers but destroyers are not the most powerful kind of ships and so it was a very one-sided affair but it was a huge uh, bonus i guess or a huge victory in many ways for the allies because they prevent 3,600 Japanese soldiers from reinforcing New Guinea. or I'm sorry, Lay. Well, it is on New Guinea. So there it is. Uh, the tide seems to be starting to turn even more in the Americans' favor. 
Any thoughts on that, Scott? Well, what you talked about with the doctrine of air supremacy, well, this isn't quite solidified in the way now in military uh, strategy as it will be later on, but um, it, it is absolutely, absolutely vital uh, to have, and we'll see how important this is. This is a morale booster to America, but there's going to be something else, I would say even more important psychologically, that's going to affect things between Japan and the United States. So what is it, James? What happens next? That's a huge psychological blow. Yeah, sometimes killing one person can have a bigger impact than killing 3,600 people, as we will soon see. So now we move on to a Japanese operation called Operation Igo, or Ego. Not Ego as in, like, I have a big ego because I'm stuck on myself, but I-G-O. After the Bismarck Sea, Admiral Yamamoto authorized this operation, I go, I'll just call it that, a massive air assault on Allied forward positions in the South Pacific. Yamamoto had about 350 planes for the attack, but they were mostly flown by rookie pilots since so many veteran pilots had been killed in previous operations. And many of these rookie pilots, not only are they inexperienced, but they're suffering from malaria and other diseases. On April 7, 1943, Japanese planes took off to attack the 31 Allied ships present off Guadalcanal. On the 11th, 174 planes attacked Port Moresby, and on the 14th, 188 attacked Milne Bay. So several big attacks, but none of them, unfortunately for the Japanese, inflicted much damage. And after this, Yamamoto decided to personally visit the men on several Japanese forward bases. You know, go rally the troops, uh, show his face, talk to them so that he could build up their morale. His first, and also kind of inspect things, see how things are going, make corrections if necessary. His first destination was the Japanese air base of Balale on Bougainville. Uh, Scott, well, tell like me more. Well, like you said, I mean, part of why he was doing this was to boost troop morale. And he was legendary. He was the mm -hmm. six-year-old mastermind of the Pearl Harbor attack in 1941. Uh, and he knew that the Japanese forces, they needed a boost after a string of defeats from 1942 to 1943. The Americans, they've established themselves on Guadalcanal and the Solomon Islands, if you remember what's happening in the background. They've defeated multiple attempts by the Japanese to recapture the island over a six-month period. Now, there, um, without giving away what James will say, um, there was suspicion among the Japanese that the Americans knew what they were doing. They didn't know their code had been broken. Uh, but there were warnings from Yamamoto's staff uh, that it was dangerous for him to travel there. Uh, one warning he came from a commander of ground forces who barely escaped death on a similar flight. Um, there was another high-ranking officer, Rear Admiral uh, Takoji Joshima, who had reservations about Yamamoto's tour. And when he learned that Yamamoto's schedule was going to be sent encoded over the radio, he was shocked at this, and some warned him not to proceed with his plans to go to this forward base. He said, uh, this uh, Rear Admiral Joshima said that a trip was sheer madness and an open invitation to the enemy to intercept his plane because of his close presence to American forces in the South Pacific. Uh, but he wanted to press ahead as a sign of confidence to his men. Uh, he even wrote a poem that he left behind his personal safe, uh, written right before he went out on this trip. 
and he said, The body is frail, yet with a mind firm, with unshakable resolve, I will drive deep into the enemy's position and let him see the blood of a Japanese man. And he wrote, Wait but a while, young men. One last battle fought gallantly to the death, and I will be joining you, hoping that they're going to rally together and shift the tide of war. So what happens next, James? Well, you know, those doggone American <laughs> code breakers, here they go again, uh, reading the Japanese mail, so to speak. And, uh, yeah, it was this, this trip of Yamamoto was definitely risky, to say the least. Very risky. And sure enough, the American code breakers learned of Yamamoto's itinerary and the head of the naval intelligence on at Pearl Harbor, who we've met before, Commander Layton. He's in the uh, Midway movie. He informed Admiral Nimitz, and it was a little bit of a dilemma. They, I think they struggled briefly about, should we target Yamamoto? Is that more like assassination? Is that more like a terrorist act or is that just war you know is war's war war is hell we just everything's okay do we do this or do we not do it and in the end nimitz said yes we're going to do it so he ordered admiral halsey to shoot down yamamoto's plane and on april 17th an american squadron of army p-38s carried this mission out yamamoto's plane was shot down and he was killed so that's the end of Yamamoto. And I, I can't help. I know I'm I'm an American and I, I'm on the American side. I'm trying to be neutral in this whole thing. I'm trying to be unbiased. But at the same time, I feel always feel Scott a little bit of sadness about Yamamoto's death. He you just can't help but admire him. He was very much a realist. He was not a fanatic, didn't really want this war in the first place. But then once he was told we are going to have the war, he said, well, let's do it right. You know, let's do it aggressively. And and uh, again, I'm probably going to get some flack for this I, for if, simply for not just demonizing Yamamoto. Yes, I understand he was the architect of the attack on Pearl Harbor in which several thousand Americans were killed. And, and that's not good. I'm not saying I'm a big fan of Yamamoto. I'm not saying I like him, but. But you have to give him grudging respect. I sort guess of like the Rommel Scott, grudging the respect. Japanese military, where Rommel is seen as he's yeah, a Nazi man who's yeah, not Rommel's... sucked into the fanaticism of the Nazi party. James here, and now a brief word from our sponsors. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground. 
cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, that's a good analogy. Yeah. Yamamoto kind of is the, the voice crying in the wilderness. You guys, you don't want to do this. But if we're going to do it, let's do it right. Yes. Okay. So anyway, uh, Yamamoto was replaced by Admiral... Minichi Koga. So Koga becomes now the head of the uh, Japanese fleet in the Pacific, the, the essentially the equivalent of Admiral Nimitz. And the Americans, they didn't want the Japanese to learn that they had broken the code. This was kind of a giveaway in, in some way. So to prevent the Japanese from knowing that the Americans had broken their code, the Americans put out a story that Yamamoto's plane had been spotted by an Australian coast watcher. And surprisingly enough, Japan's leaders believed it, and they did not change their naval codes, at least not at this point. Uh, naval historian Craig Simons, in his book World War II in the Pacific, he wrote this. He said, Yamamoto's funeral was a symbolic milestone, one that underscored the fact that the initiative in the Pacific had passed fully and irrevocably to the Americans. Sorry, I can't talk today. Anyway, this is it. This is this is kind of like it's more than the death of one man. It is the changing of the guard, if you are the passing of an age. Now, the Americans are on the offense and will continue to be on the offense. Japan's going to play defense. Just another symbol. We've already talked about Midway and Guadalcanal. This is kind of like a third major turning point. Right. And it's not even his strategy, but I think the morale boost um, and the huge blow that Yamamoto's death caused among Japanese troops and um, sailors and everyone else. I'm reminded of a quote from the Duke of Wellington at the Battle of Waterloo. He said that Napoleon's presence on the battlefield was worth 40,000 men, that based on his battles with him, if Napoleon was just uh, commanding from afar, there was a difference he could tell from when Napoleon was nearby. The, the troops, maybe they were inspired by his presence. They felt safer. They felt bolder because they thought, I'm standing near the light of genius. And whatever, wherever I'm being sent to, it's guided by an intelligence that will make sense of what it is I'm doing, even if I don't personally understand it. So I have confidence what I'm doing, and I have faith in my mission. And Yamamoto was sort of like that, that this is an absolute strategic mastermind, so... Me as a lonely pilot, as an infantryman, you know, here in this jungle where I may be starving, there's a higher intelligence that's guiding me what it is I'm doing, so I have confidence in that. When he shot down, that must have shaken many to their core, that, well, if he can't be protected, then mm -hmm. what does that say about me, who just is a lonely grunt out here, and who cares about me if they can't even protect him? So can't imagine the blow that, I mean... What if, you know, Chester Nimitz had been assassinated? What kind of blow would that have been to a sailor? Right. I couldn't imagine it. 
or Dwight Eisenhower. Yeah, yeah. or Eisenhower in, in the Europe European theater, right? Yeah, it, it it's. I mean, we talked about this a long time ago when we first introduced Yamamoto, but he was one of the most powerful people in Japan, military or civilian. Uh, he was greatly beloved by the Japanese military, at least the Navy, as well as the Japanese people in general. Huge, towering, larger-than-life figure, even though he was very small physically, but but he cast a big shadow, and there would never be another Yamamoto. You know what? I'm, th- I'm thinking of when the South lost Stonewall right, right. Jackson in 1863. Um the Battle of Chancellorsville, that was a huge loss, not not just because he was a terrific tactician, but just the uh, symbolic loss of this, you know, titan of this of the Confederate Army, and this widely beloved man. I, I think the impact is comparable. I think that's a pretty that's good a analogy. Big, uh, w- I, I hope so. Anyway, if not. I'm sure someone. Well, I thought of that know. exact same thing but, uh, too, because I think people who love to what if these scenarios, what if Yamamoto had not been assassinated. The same way the Civil War, I'm sure one of the biggest turning um, points, the path of divergence is what if Stonewall Jackson had lived through the war and Yamamoto continuing to execute right. things, con- continuing to command. And uh, the, I mean, there were. There were always attempts on different leaders. In 1943, there was an assassination attempt on FDR, Stalin, and Churchill in Iran by German intelligence that they could have killed mm-hmm. them. What would that have done to the war effort? Uh, but this did happen. Yamamoto, very much, um, I don't know if it's the highest profile assassination in the entire war um, or killing, but it, it very well might be up there. I can't think of another one that's higher. Uh, I mean, like like we said, this guy is the commander of the entire Japanese fleet. Um, he's like Nimitz. So, yeah, big loss for Japan. Huge loss. Big uh, victory for the Americans, both psychologically as well as uh, strategically. All right, so we're going to look at one more campaign now. We talked about a while ago, several episodes ago, when we discussed the Battle of Midway, how... The Battle of Midway was preceded slightly by a Japanese attack on the Aleutian Islands, and the Japanese actually took the islands of Atu and Kiska. And after that, the American leaders, the military as well as civilian, they said, eh, that's okay, we don't really need them anymore, they can just have them. It's just Alaska, right? Just kidding, folks. I'm getting... No hate mail from my Alaskan listeners, please. I'm I'm totally being crazy here. I'm being silly. The exact opposite is going to happen. This was the only uh, Japanese seizure of U.S. territory on in North America. Of course, they'd obviously taken Wake Island and Guam and uh, other places, but now they're even though this is Alaska, it's not the lower 48. Still, it's it's hitting way too close to home. So the Americans decide we're going to take them back. By June 1943, the U.S. Pacific Fleet was expanding almost daily, and the -the state-of-the-art carrier, which we've kind of mentioned a little before, but now we're going to formally introduce the USS Essex. This is a much better carrier than the earlier ones we saw. uh, Sorry, Scott, but the (laughs) Yorktown, the, the original Yorktown, the Enterprise, the Hornet, those were old. These are new. These are high-tech, state-of-the-art, high-tech for the time. Uh, Essex is going to be the first of many similar ones, so much so that 
the Essex is going to be give its name to a class. So now we have this seriously kick-butt carrier, which is going to be followed by many other kick-butt carriers. The Essex held more than 90 aircraft, all of which were new and superior to their Japanese counterparts. And these new aircraft include a huge advance called the F-6F Hellcat, made by Grumman. It, the Hellcat replaces the Wildcat, and it is much better, and it's, it's better than the Zero. Uh, well, Scott's going to talk more about this later, so I don't want to steal your thunder, Scott. But uh, let's also talk about other planes. You had the F-4U Corsair fighters, SB-3C Helldiver bombers, and TBF Avenger torpedo bombers. So basically all the the older planes that we saw at Coral Sea and Midway are being replaced by much better, uh, faster, more maneuverable, more powerful aircraft. And again, that's a huge, going to prove to be a huge advantage to the Americans. Tell us some more about Hellcats. Well, I mean, this is fitting in an episode all about turning points because replacing the Wildcats with the Hellcats is a huge turning point. And we see in previous episodes mm -hmm. that uh, the F4F Wildcat going, doing a dogfight with the Zero is absolute suicide. Um, there are tactics that are developed where the Wildcats can fight, but they have to fight as a group. You can't go one on one. If if they were above the Zeros and dove, there was a wider wider field of vision in a Wildcat, so that was an advantage. But you really had to, everything had to line up perfectly. Uh, and you see this in um, the dogfights, where when the Wildcats were fighting with Zeros, they have weak engines combined with a heavy weight. So the tactic is that a Zero would bait an F4F into pursuit. Uh, the Wildcat would begin to climb into the vertical and begin a vertical loop, uh, loop, and then fly inverted at its peak to keep an eye on its prey. This is what the Zero would do, and this was an enticing shot for Wildcat but it couldn't get its guns on the target before it lost control, and then it fell into a stall. And then the Zero would nose over and pounce on the stalling Wildcat and kill it easily. But the Hellcat could keep up with the Zero throughout the vertical loop and bring its 50 caliber machine guns to bear on the Zero. So when Zero pilots are first fighting against Hellcats, they are shocked at this because they're using tactics with the Wildcat. They're going into their loop, expect it, the stall, but then it doesn't. And the Hellcat is superior to the Zero in energy, speed, altitude, performance. Uh, it could... Um, the only place where the Zero still has a little bit of advantage is it had the engine power to escape low-speed, low-altitude engagements. But all of the strategy that the Zeros had built around the Wildcats are now thrown out the window, and the Hellcats can go toe-to-toe -to -toe in a dogfight. This is huge change right here. This is a turning point right here, and you have much larger carriers, as James said, that is just, it has dozens and dozens and dozens of these that are being let out into uh, aerial battles. So, huge difference right there. Indeed. So, two more, uh, two months later, uh, well, actually, it's, yeah, by the early fall, the U.S. rolled out two more Essex-class carriers. By the end of the year, there were a total of six. And two of these were named after the Lex Lexington and the Yorktown. There you go, New Scott. Yorkie. There's have Yorktown. To the old Yorkie. Two. Number two. Yes, much better, powerful, faster, stronger, and all that, like the $6 million man. And uh, 
so they were they were renamed that or or named that to honor the two earlier ones that have been lost. And later there would also be a new wasp and a new hornet. In 1943, the Japanese were overextended. They found it increasingly difficult to supply the garrisons on their many island outposts. And one garrison that was especially difficult to supply was the one on the Aleutian Islands of Atu and Kiska, which the Japanese, as I said, had captured in June 1942. Um, I've read that some of the Japanese soldiers stationed there felt like it was being in a prison camp. And others even went as far as to say that it's worse than a prison camp because at least in a prison camp you you tend to get fed, but here we're we're barely having anything to eat. On March 26, 1943, at the Battle of the Komodorsky Islands, an American fleet chased away a Japanese convoy to the islands, so that cuts off the final uh, wave of supplies. Two months later, American forces landed on Atu, and after nearly three weeks of fighting in deplorable conditions, defeated the garrison. That occurred on May 30th. 1943, and they recaptured the island. Ten weeks later, a combined American-Canadian force of 34,000 men landed on Kiska. And they found there nobody, no Japanese. That was an easy conquest. The Japanese had been evacuated two weeks earlier. The Japanese realized they're going to have to pull in some, consolidate, tighten their defensive lines, so to speak. I say line, it's several thousand miles, but uh, it's just not worth it to try to hold on to these Aleutian Islands anymore. So that is our the last of our, the first half of our series on brief engagements that occur between 1942 and 1944. We're not going to have another major or key battle until 1944. So we wanted to kind of bridge the gap and take you from Guadalcanal to the next major battle, which eventually we'll we'll be talking about the Philippine Sea as well as Saipan. Uh, So next time we will also talk about some more engagements. We'll talk about the Solomons and the Gilberts and the Marshalls, particularly the Battle of Tarawa. Before we sign off, though, Scott, any final words? Well, this is the big change. We handled about 13 months here from July 1942 to 1943. In the beginning, I think for Japan, there's still the glimmer of hope of the original strategy of win decisively within six months and then have a negotiated peace. That's gone, obviously. Um, the far reaches of Japanese conquest are being defeated. They have to push back. Now they have to consolidate their holdings and they're moving from a strategy of win decisively and have a negotiated peace after six months to a long, terrible war of attrition, which Japan is now digging in its heels to fight. Yeah, the, the initiative has shifted, but the war is nowhere near over. It's it's not time for the Japanese to throw in the towel. They They realize we can still win this. We just need to pull back. Like I said, we need to reinforce, uh, kind of set up a line in the sand, so to speak, reinforce these islands, make the Americans come in, attack them, and just bleed them dry. Make, them, make the Americans lose so many men and so many ships and so many planes that finally the American government just says, enough, and we'll just let the Japanese keep a certain amount. That is what the Japanese are banking on. The Americans, for now at least, are determined to keep pushing toward the West, to keep pushing Japan back toward the home islands, and we will see them continue to do that in our next episode. See you then.
Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like to support this podcast and help it to grow, there are four things you can do. First, you can subscribe to the podcast and leave a review on the podcast player of your choice. This helps other people to find the podcast. Ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts are especially helpful. Second, join our Facebook group, which is called American History Fanatics, where we discuss the episodes of this podcast as well as other topics related to American history. Third, tell as many friends as you can about the show. Fourth, you can join the elite unit called Early's Raiders by going to patreon.com and searching for key battles of American history. There are five different levels of support to choose from. Each level allows you to have early access to ad-free episodes. Higher levels bring additional benefits, including bonus episodes and even the ability to commission episodes on topics of your choosing. Before I close, I would like to give a shout-out to the current members of Early's Raiders. Thanks to Majors Chris C. and Bob McCullough, Captains Jenny Kateri, Jeff Henley, Grant Holstrom, Jose Martinez, and Melissa Mueller, and Lieutenants Matthew Christensen, Scott Hendricks, and Jeff Sabo. I greatly appreciate your support. Thank you for listening to Key Battles of American History. If you liked this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on your favorite podcast catcher. And please be sure and spread the word about the show. If you can spare a few minutes, rate and review the show at Apple Podcasts. This greatly helps us to reach more listeners. And for show notes, maps, and further discussion, visit our website at www.keybattlesofamericanhistory.com. Thank you, and we look forward to joining you again in the next episode of Key Battles of American History. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.